Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. I'll get over you. I know I will. I'll pretend my ship's not sinking. Welcome back to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Oh, it is so, 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 so good to be sitting here in front of a microphone again uh, with a whole ton of notes for Luke 18. This is going to be great. Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. It's your Bible podcast for the religiously burned out and the spiritually curious. It's it's kind of like a punk rock Bible class. We we look at a chapter at a time. We go pretty pretty slow. I guess that's not very punk rock, but we we keep it simple. We we just look at a little bit of history and a little bit of language. And then we dig into only three simple questions at the end to kind of figure out what's really going on in the story. Because the story is the most important part. If they're writing you a story, don't go away from it as a story. I think that's where the power of the text is. And so, um, yes, it's been a while, but I only have a little bit of time. I have an hour to the ho- of the house to myself before someone comes home and either starts doing laundry upstairs because my podcast closet is directly below the laundry room, or uh, before I have to go pick up my kid from school. So we're going to try and crank this out. This is going to be great. Luke 18 is awesome. Um, It is a really, it's a masterful section of the book uh, where Luke really uses a couple small stories. These aren't really the stories that you would normally hear about or maybe even remember if you've read it before. But it weaves the themes of the text together in a really intricate, really, really cool way Um, before Luke will then move on pretty soon to the passion narrative where Jesus enters Jerusalem, heads towards the crucifixion, and then on to the resurrection. So this is some pretty exciting stuff that's really kind of a culmination of one section of the text. I hope you like it as much as I do. Let's jump right into Luke 18. Then Jesus told a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while, he refused. But later, he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, while the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the the first little section of the story. And it's Jesus, and he's he's talking to, to his audience, which is mainly the disciples, and he tells them a parable, and he's trying to encourage them to not lose heart. And that's a really interesting part of this, uh, this particular parable, is Luke goes ahead and tells us the meaning at the beginning. And normally parables are kind of like mystery stories with a punchline. Uh, so this one, Luke is like, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and tell them what it means. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. So there's like a moral lesson to this little parable story. And the lesson he hopes you get is that you pray always and don't lose heart. Or at least that's what Jesus wanted his audience to to have. So that's just an interesting note. Let's just go ahead and jump right in. Um, He talks about not losing heart. Now, if we go back to the last chapter, Luke 17, there was these uh, kind of confusing apocalyptic kind of judgment into the worldly kind of sections of the story where... Uh, it's prophesied that there's going to be some cataclysmic events coming, some like cosmic events, because people are asking, oh, when does the kingdom of God going to come in its fullness? And Jesus is like, oh, well, you're, you're totally going to notice it when it happens. It's, it's, but it's not coming maybe for a while. So the, the, it kind of ends with, with these two stories of some people are ready for it to happen when it happens and some people aren't. And so some people get taken you know, on an adventure, or some people get taken away to prison, or some people um, are pr- are preserved and persevere and endure, and some people don't in the stories Jesus tells in Luke 17. So after he's just laid out these kind of tough, confusing, apocalyptic stories, 
Jesus turns to them and tells them a parable about their need to pray always and to not lose heart. So there's going to be a delay in the kingdom coming, Jesus says. It's, it's not going to happen yet. Like things aren't going to get better yet. In fact, it's, it's kind of only going to get worse, either because some bad things are going to happen or because it's just going to take a while and you're going to have to wait. And Jesus here acknowledges for the, you know, his audience, for the followers, it's, it's going to be hard for you to endure and to stay prepared. It's, you're going to have to wait a while. So keep praying and don't lose heart. And what's interesting is that this, uh, the language used in this parable actually parallels interest in interesting ways and some other places in Luke 18 are. So this is a very intentional thing on behalf of Luke. They parallel events that happen in the Exodus story from the Old Testament. So if, uh, if you know your Old Testament at all, which is the first half of the, of the, the Bible version that Christians carry, um, it's the second book. So the first book is called Genesis. Second book is called Exodus. And Exodus is really the story of the foundation of, of the nation of Israel. And they get to escape slavery in Egypt, but they endure slavery for hundreds of years in Egypt. And there's this interesting phrase at the end of that story where it says, but then the people cried out to God who heard them like in the anguish of their slavery. And so here we have this widow character in the parable crying out for justice. She keeps coming to him and says, grant me justice against my opponent. And then Jesus says later, he says, and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. So Jesus and or Luke are choosing the language carefully to parallel with the story from the book of Exodus. So just as how the people of Israel had to endure slavery for hundreds of years. Jesus is like, you might have to endure this, this waiting period for the kingdom to come in its fullness. And it's not going to be good, but keep crying out just as the people once did. So it's kind of interesting. Um, we're actually going to see, again, some, some more Exodus language later on in the book. But let's go ahead and look at this, at this uh, character of the widow in the parable. Um, widows, again, uh, were a lowly uh, status person in their ancient culture. So um, if you were a woman in the culture, you couldn't like own property. You couldn't even really, uh, you had not a lot of legal rights. Um, so it was very hard for you to take care of and provide for yourself or your family. Unless, so you were always dependent on the males in your family group. Now, what's interesting is we know she's a widow, so her husband is gone. So the person who could protect them legally or stand up for them or go earn an income or something like that is gone. Um, and we're not heard of any other males, sons, cousins, uncles, her father even, someone like that who steps in to advocate for this woman. So it seems like she is in a position of being um, alone in the world, basically. And she's, uh, if you were a widow in that time and you had no, no, no male um, family members to take care of you, that meant that you were completely dependent on community assistance to get by and to make it. And so something unjust has happened to her. She has an opponent. And so she goes to this judge every day. And what do we know about the judge? Um, the judge uh, has neither fear for God, nor respect for people. Respect for people could also be translated as like having no shame for his actions towards people in the community. So this is not a good judge. And so Jesus here is again using, we've talked about this before, a what we call a how much more argument. Jesus is inserting characters into a parable that are kind of people who are supposed to be the characters that represent God, um, but are actually contrasting figures, even if they're in the same role that God might be in. So God is kind of like the judge of everything. Here we have a judge, but this judge is like an antithesis, antithesis uh, to, to God, because this one neither fears God nor has respect for people. Whereas, at least I think if you would ask Jesus in the book of Luke, God kind of seems to think people are pretty important. So this judge is pretty awful. Um, and he's, and, and he's therefore not fulfilling his role. So in Israel, they had laws and rules and regulations for judges and their job was actually to be advocates for people who are the most vulnerable and in the most need. And so all over the latter part of the old Testament, you have all these prophetic books where one of the things that prophets, uh, often bring to their community is that our judges are unjust and specifically the justice they're not fulfilling are, are advocating for people who are the most marginalized, the most vulnerable, the most in need. 
And so this judge is, is, is acting out even not just against people, but against, you know, the prophetic witness of their faith in their community. Um, but he does decide to give in eventually uh, because this lady just keeps coming every day and crying out for justice. And so just because he's bothered, um, he says, oh, I, I guess I'll grant her justice against her opponent um, because this widow keeps bothering me so that she might not wear me out by continually coming. I'm told that the Greek in that phrase, the wear me out phrase, could actually be more literally translated as before this woman gives me a black eye. Like before this woman makes it obvious that I'm a bad judge to the rest of the community in a visible way, <laughs> which is really just kind of fun. If that's really the literal translation, why didn't they just translate the Bible like that? That's such a better way to tell the story anyway. But um, so he eventually decides he'll go ahead and grant justice. And then Jesus turns and then says, um, he, he goes in ahead and offers the comparison and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. So if you endure and you pray and you don't lose heart and you don't lose faith, eventually, yes, God will grant justice. And then he he offers that phrase, will he delay long in helping them, which is troubling to me because if it's if, if there's an Exodus parallel here, the delay in saving Israel from slavery was hundreds of years. So that doesn't sit very well with me just as a reader. But he tosses it out there. And so Jesus' point, though, is that God is a better judge than this judge. He cares for the poor and he listens to the cries of the people. So please don't lose heart. Like the people who were slaves in Egypt who kept crying out to God, don't give up. And so Jesus is, again, commenting on on how this is a prep time for the kingdom of God to be established, you know. Um, And it's... Unfortunately, his his bad news right now is it's not going to happen soon, and it's actually going to be awful in the meantime. There's the verse that the last chapter wraps up with about the vultures gathering where the corpses lie. And I don't know if I pointed it out in the last episode, but that word for vultures could also be translated as eagles, which is a Roman symbol. We've talked about that before. So it's like it's like Jesus saying, like, it's it's going to be awful. In fact, Rome is going to be the oppressor, is going to be in power for a while. And you, like defenseless widows might be crying out to people around you for justice and you might not get it, but keep crying out to God because he will not delay long. And what's interesting here is that in the teaching, Jesus is teaching them how to stay prepared for the kingdom of God. And it's not something they're supposed to bring about themselves. It's like, how do we prepare for the kingdom of God? Do we go and fight and vanquish all of our enemies? No, it's, you guys are like defenseless widows. You, you pray. And prayer in the book of Luke all throughout kind of has a, has, a, has a twofold use or meaning or effect. And it's people are supposed to pray for the things that they want. But if they don't get what they want, you're supposed to keep praying so you experience the presence of God in a way that helps you endure while you don't have what you want. And so just as this, this widow continually keeps crying out to the judge and, and the crying out itself is, is, is an act. Um, but then she eventually gets justice. Jesus teaches his, his followers, keep praying, not just to get what you want, but that way you stay connected in relationship to God that will help you endure the preparation and the waiting for the kingdom of God. Jesus himself is going to experience this when he prays in the garden before his death. And he's going to experience both of these sides of prayer, which is really interesting. So it's not like Jesus always gets what he wants and we, and people sometimes don't. It's like, no, actually you don't get what you pray for, but what you get in the midst of the asking is the relationship with God. It's kind of interesting. Let's go ahead and look at the next passage. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, 
be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. What a great story. And it actually continues off of the, the themes and the context that we're playing on. So it says he also told this parable. Um, so it's in the same scene. Um, and he's still, remember, we're dealing with the themes of how people are supposed to prepare and be ready for the kingdom of God to come. And how are they supposed to endure in the meantime? And here you have Jesus in the last section. It was like, well, how do we endure? The question here is, well, how do we know if we're in the right group? Because remember, being part of the kingdom of God and being part of, of uh, like, like, like being saved, like in that way, um, isn't on an individual basis. Like we often sometimes think about it or talk about it in religious groups today. It's actually a communal thing in their time. So the question for you as an individual at the time, if you wanted to inherit eternal life, if you wanted to enter the kingdom of God, however you want to phrase it, was, am I in the right group of people? So even Jesus, when he talks about it, he says that those who are chosen and those who are left behind, like it's two people, groups, something like that. And so in asking this question, um, when we read this parable, um, the problem is, is that there's some people uh, who trust in themselves that they were righteous and might regard others with contempt. So the question here is what makes one righteous? Is it religious practice and success at, at following all the ritual requirements and things like that? Is it, is it theological knowledge that you've built up and study and stuff like that that makes you in the right people group? Or is it your national identity or how good of a person you are? Let's see how Jesus answers it. So there's two men and one is a Pharisee. Now a Pharisee would be someone, to, if they appeared in a story about who gets in and who doesn't, a Pharisee would be like the easy answer for these people get into the kingdom of God. Like, they are people who follow all the rules even more strictly than others. So they're extra careful about fulfilling all the requirements for getting into the kingdom. And yet Jesus, in his story, makes the Pharisee the one who's out. And Pharisees, all throughout the book of Luke, are almost always people who are against the work that Jesus is in the world. So they're kind of actively finding themselves being against the kingdom of God. Remember, they're always outside of the party when people are celebrating sinners coming to repentance. And so this Pharisee in the, in the, in the parable, it said he, he, he trusts in himself for righteousness. Um, he is convinced that he is in. And so when he goes to the temple and pray, he stands by himself and he stands up. And when people prayed normally, then they would actually pray standing up with often with their arms out with eyes looking up towards heaven. And so this is how the Pharisee prays. And all his prayer is, is just saying, God, Thank you that I'm not like these other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. This Pharisee is so convinced that he's in, he also knows exactly who is out. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, tax collectors. And he, he, he acknowledges his in-ness by giving two pieces of evidence. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all my income. And so the, the, these tithes um, and fasts, these were rituals people would do at the time that were supposed to help them. Um, like if you fasted, that meant you go, we went without food for a time. And that would meant that you were actually identifying with poor people. Like you're like, oh, I know that people go without hunger. And that was supposed to drive you to, to pray to God, to help those people and to drive yourself towards action for doing everything you can to help poor people. Because you also remember what it's like to be hungry. You're joining into solidarity with them. And then that fasting was then also supposed to be a time of prayer that prepared you for revelation of God. Like you're supposed to learn new things, see new things, experience new things. And so the, then the tithe as well, I give a tenth of all my income. It doesn't say where he gives the income away. So we don't know if he's giving that tenth of income to poor people or to the community or to the synagogue or something like that. Maybe even towards his own Pharisee group. We don't really know. But he's like, oh, I'm obviously good because I do these two things. The problem is, though, is that he's supposed to be fasting to drive him closer to people in need. 
And that hasn't resulted in that. Because here he is standing by himself and praying loudly in the temple, thanking God that he's not as bad as other people. So he's doing all the right ritualistic actions. He's kind of very religiously successful, but it hasn't resulted in the effect that those rituals are supposed to have of driving him to show more love, more compassion, more favor on others. In fact, it's almost had the opposite effect, that he does these actions and feels so justified in them that he knows that he's fine, unlike all these other awful people. And so Jesus is here saying, what are the signs of that you are one of the people who's in the right group, that you're going to be in the kingdom, that you're part of this covenant family. And it's not that you do all the rituals, but it's that you are rightly oriented towards other people. And so it's ironic because those rituals are supposed to teach you to do that, but they haven't taught this Pharisee to do that. And so, um, and even before in previous chapters, Jesus has stood up and given teachings where he's like, you guys do all these tithings and sacrifices and you do all the right stuff, but it hasn't actually driven you to the right action and result of you actually going out and taking care of others. In fact, by making it more about the rituals themselves, you've burdened everybody else with religious requirements that they can't fulfill. That's not good. So Jesus is here redefining the concept of righteousness as not being about blamelessness, according to the law, and doing all the right actions. It's actually about how you are oriented to God in a way that changes how you are oriented to the rest of the world. And in contrast, we have the tax collector, who, to put the tax collector in as a story, just to remind you, would make this character immediately suspicious to everyone in the ancient audience, because tax collectors were not people that you liked. In fact, if you were an Israelite person, the tax collectors were considered traitors to your country, to your people, and to your God. Because to be a tax collector meant that you sided with Rome. You went around and collected and stole money from people to pay Rome, the oppressive government who worships dirty pagan gods. And so this tax collector is identified with the e the eagle, with Rome. Um, and th this is the character who gets it right, because this tax collector doesn't stand by themselves in the midst of the temple, but they stand far off. And they don't even look up towards heaven. He's, he's, he's humble, and he looks down, and he beats his breast, and he just prays one simple prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So he's expressing humility, which we remember in Luke is a big theme. Everyone on the ground does well. And he's not literally on the ground here, but he's standing far off in the temple and he doesn't look up and he beats his own breast. Those are signs of grief and anguish. And the simple prayer he says is be merciful to me, which again is language picked, cherry picked from the book of Exodus. So in the book of Exodus, the people escape uh, slavery. God saves them. They go out to the wilderness. They have a big party. God goes up, uh, not God, Moses goes up the mountain to meet God, to bring them the law, to inaugurate their, them being God's people. And when he gets down from the mountain, he sees that the people have turned their backs on the God who just saved them, that they've been crying out to for so long. And they are now worshiping a statue they made, a, a golden calf. And um, then God decides to be merciful to them. And it's the same word used here when the guy prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So just as people once worshipped the wrong way and were part of the wrong people group, were traitors to God on behalf of the idolatrous other. Now this tax collector is praying, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's acknowledging that he's been cut off from the people and he's worshiped something other than God. And so it picks that language up from Exodus. This guy is truly repentant and he's humble and stuff like that. So Jesus really likes this guy instead and says, that guy is going to be justified. That guy is considered righteous, not the other guy. Because everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. So again, the rising, lowing language. If you pick yourself up, that never works. You're going to be brought down. But if you stay at or lower yourself, you will be picked up and risen. We see that all over Luke. Um, we're going to see a very similar situation to this story 
um, actually picked up again later on in the crucifixion story, where we have two criminals who are crucified at the same time as Jesus, and one like self-justifies himself and mocks Jesus, and which is just strange to me that someone is in agony and they're spending their last moments yelling at someone else. And we have the other guy who spends his last moments defending Jesus and asks for mercy to be welcomed into the kingdom. And she's like, oh yeah, you are going to be with me when I go, which is really interesting. So we see parallels between these two people and Luke is setting that up right now and we'll see it pay off later when we get to that chapter. Let's go ahead and continue on. People were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they sternly ordered them not to do it. But Jesus called for them and said, Let the little children come to me and do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. So uh, here we have another story, and it's about the kingdom of God, because Jesus brings it up in this passage, and kind of it continues to answer the question of who gets in and who doesn't. So Jesus, again, has has told everyone, um, you're going to have to wait a while. It's going to be hard. Some people are going to get in. Some people won't. And so now people are kind of left with these questions in his audience about who who does, and Luke is answering it for them here. So people are bringing infants. Um, again, we have we have distance language, which is that we always pick up in Luke, just like up and down language, distance from far to close, always always clues us in that something important is happening with those people. And so people are bringing their infants from far away to Jesus. They're going from far away to get close. And at first they're kept away, but then they're invited in to be close to Jesus. So, so that's the setup for the story. Now let's go and see, um, kind of, kind of pick apart what's going on. Um, so the parents are on to something. And, um, if you asked someone for a blessing, that would mean that you believed that that person you were asking for a blessing from was already previously blessed by God. So in coming specifically to Jesus, to ask Jesus to, to, to touch their kids, that's, that's what you would do when you, when you blessed and, and, and prayed for someone, um, it seems like they're identifying Jesus correctly as being someone who is at least blessed by God and someone important for them to bring their kids to. So whereas other people throughout the book of Luke and throughout all the gospels, really, but throughout the book of Luke, um, sometimes misidentify Jesus. They think he's full of evil spirits. They think he's working against the kingdom, stuff like that. They think he's not the Messiah. These people are like, oh, he's, he, I, I think he's, he's, he's important. He's, he's connected with God in a special way. Let's bring our kids to them for a blessing. So there's, so parents, good job for these parents. And then they kind of become a model for the people, both the infants and the parents. And Jesus uses this as a teaching moment because at first people try and keep the kids away, which Jesus corrects them. No, 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 no. Let the, let them come. Like the favor is, is for everybody. Don't stop them. Um, and then he says, particularly for it is such to these, such as these, that the kingdom of God belongs. And so what does that really mean? Um, well, all we know from them in the story is that there are people who are willing to come and to ask and to receive from him because they identify Jesus correctly. So Luke is continuing to use these Jesus stories to answer the question for his audience, who gets into the kingdom? Well, here it's the people that come and humbly ask and are willing to receive. The Pharisee in the last story, in the last parable Jesus told, he doesn't ask for anything in his prayer. He goes all the way to the temple and asks for nothing because he thinks he already has it down. In fact, he spends his time praying, boasting about how great he is. Whereas the tax collector is humble and asks for mercy. And so these people also embody that parable then. They come and they ask Jesus for something that they need. So there's a little bit of humility there. They also seem to trust that there's something about Jesus that he would actually be good and willing to give them that. So it actually connects back to that judge widow story. Like they have kept heart and they keep asking. And because they keep asking, they receive. Um, and Jesus talks about how, how you know, such of these are the kingdom of God belongs. Let's remember in uh, Luke 16, Jesus poses the, poses the idea that some people are going to try and take the kingdom by force but they won't get in. And so here in Luke 18, these people are freely invited to receive the kingdom of God, even though they're just little children who are low status people in the society. 
because they come and they're gentle and they're humble and they ask for it. They can't get it by force. They can only get it by being like a little kid who has to ask. And so uh, this is then a kind of an embodiment of the, the lesson from the, from the Judge Widow story. Like, you don't go and take something. You're not supposed to go fight for it. So like that, endure the waiting period and keep asking for it. Luke wants his audience to know. Let's continue on to the next part. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's code language for, that's kingdom code language. So he's, he's really asking, what, am I, what should I do to get into the kingdom? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the man replied, I've kept all of these since my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, there is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the man heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this said, Then who can be saved? And he replied, What is possible for mortals is possible for God. So this is our next little scene. Um, So this ruler shows up, apparently, in the midst of this uh, whole section where Jesus is teaching on on the nature of the kingdom and how you need to endure a waiting time and who gets in and who doesn't, how you can be properly prepared to enter the kingdom when it comes. And he asks the same question, good teacher, what, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus answers him um, at first. Um, he, he, this guy wants to know if he's going to get in. It's just a pretty honest question. I mean, I might ask the same thing if I met Jesus somewhere. Um, and Jesus' first answer is he quotes all the 10, you know, a bunch of commandments from the 10 commandments. And it's interesting which ones Jesus brings up. Because there's some commandments that are all about what people should do to worship God properly. Like, you should have no other gods before me. You should keep the Sabbath, stuff like that. But Jesus doesn't quote any of those. He only quotes the other, like, six that are the ones that are all about how you treat other people. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't, you know, honor your parents. Stuff like that. Um, And that's... Jesus's first answer of, well, how do you get into the kingdom? Well, you, you don't be mean to other people. You don't be awful to other people. You be a respectable citizen, you know, in, in regards to your relationship with others. Remember, Jesus has already earlier in this chapter redefined righteousness for a lot of us by saying it's not about the religious rituals you do towards God, but it's about how you orient yourself towards the rest of the people around you. And Jesus here is, is adding on to that. Well, do all these commandments about how, how you treat other people. Um, cause the Pharisee could do all those rituals too, but he doesn't get in, in that story. Um, so the ruler responds, well, I, I've done all of these. So he's, in a sense, you could kind of read this as him being kind of like the Pharisee in the parable. Like, oh, I've done this and I've done, I've kept all the rituals. Like I've, I've kept all the right observance, you know, I've avoided bad behavior. Like you can read that as him being really earnest to be like, no, I've, I've, I've loved and taken care of other, of other people. Or you could kind of read it as him being like, well, I've avoided breaking all the laws. Like, like, but I'm not as, no, I'm, I'm not one of those tax collectors who steals from others. So I'm okay. Right. You're like two ways to read it. I'll let you choose which one you want. So then Jesus gives a second answer. He's like, oh yes, there's a new righteousness. It's not about just fulfilling all those laws. You have to have a radical reorienting of yourself towards other people. And that means you need to give away all the stuff you have. Sell it, get as much money as you can. And then when you have that money, go give it to poor people. And then they can come and follow me because you can't keep it with you. You know, like, um, and Jesus gives him a promise. If you do that, you'll have treasure in heaven. And this is language that Jesus often uses in the book of Luke. He says, like, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. You should be rich towards God and then you'll have treasure in heaven. That comes from Luke 12. And here Jesus repeats that again. 
And in doing so, this guy would, would kind of become like God, like he would be generous and showing favor on all others and taking care of others. And that's the new righteousness that gets you into the group, into the right people. Um, but the guy, when he hears Jesus's second answer, is sad. And his problem isn't that he's like a tax collector. He didn't, he, we don't, it doesn't sound like he stole from others because he's kept those commandments. He just happens to be wealthy. But he has it already. And he wants to keep it. And he wants to keep it for himself. And so he can't follow through. Um, and so I, it sounds like the guy just leaves. It says, when he heard this, he became sad for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him, which to me strikes me as kind of a tender thing. Um, but maybe not. I mean, maybe it's a, it's a look of judgment, but it's like Jesus looks at him and says, so you have to imagine him like being like eye contact. How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Like I, when I read the story, it almost sounds like Jesus is kind of broken hearted for this guy. Because it's he wants to be in the kingdom, but it's it's going to be so hard. And what's hard is that he has wealth. So again, you have to remember that whenever Jesus talks about wealth, it's a dangerous thing because nothing else can keep you out of the kingdom of God like wealth. He says you have to either worship God or worship money. That's it. Like wealth is the only thing Jesus seems to draw a line in the sand about. And here we see it happen live. And so it's not that the guy worships wealth it's like oh he's super greedy and that's why he has all the money he just has it and yet it's changed his orientation towards others where it's it's so hard for him to be radically generous in the way that would like guarantee him a place in the kingdom and so jesus's word image that he follows up with is it's easier for a camel to squeeze the teeny tiny eye of a needle than it is for one of you wealthy people to reorient yourself to show favor on others and experience the kingdom of god Jesus here thinks wealth is a serious problem. And so does his audience, because they're there and they say, well, then who can be saved? Like, who, how is that possible? Like, like, I mean, you have to remember that kind of like in our day to day, people who were wealthy were viewed as the people who had done it right. They had made all the good choices. They were good people. God had blessed them with that wealth. And so... These people are like, well, if this guy who's followed all the rules and who is successful in the world can't make it into the kingdom, how do any of the rest of us lowlifes, you know, have a chance? And Jesus responds, what is possible, impossible for mortals is possible with God. You can't get in. You can't take it by force. But God can. Because remember, everyone who gets into the kingdom are people who ask for it out of their need for help. Tax collector cries for mercy, just as the people in Exodus cry for mercy. The kids come and freely receive what Jesus is willing to offer them. It's not by force. So this all connects together. Let's read the next part. Then Peter said, look, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not get back very much more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So Peter, real quick, if we look back at Peter and Luke so far, Peter is a weird, fun character because he's a weird mix of someone who like has genius moments and who has like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just said that moments. Um, And two in particular that I I want us to remember here are um, Peter, when he meets Jesus, Jesus heals, uh, heals a family member of his and Peter runs to Jesus and bows on the ground and says, go away from me for I am a sinful man. His prayer is almost exactly like the tax collectors. He stays far away And he prays for mercy. He identifies himself as a sinful man. And he's the first one to be on the ground for Jesus. Um, And he's also the first one of the disciples to identify Jesus correctly as the Messiah back in, I think it's Luke 9. 
Um, and so he, he has these like key, like genius moments. And, but here Peter speaks up and says, look, we've left all of our homes and followed you. And I don't know if Peter's just kind of like earnestly being like, well, look, we, we left all of our homes and followed you. Like we're, we're, we're here. We're with you. Or if he's like, look, (laughs) we've left all of our homes and followed, like we've done the impossible, you know what I mean? Or something like that. But either way, Jesus kind of brushes it almost aside. And he says, oh my gosh, yes, I see that you have, many of you have left behind houses and families and wives and brothers and parents and children. And you've left it all behind for the sake of the kingdom. And you'll get back very much more, both in this age and in the age to come. You will inherit eternal life because you've been willing to leave things behind to join this movement. And that would be huge for them because family loyalty and commitment was considered like the paramount of virtue in their culture. And yet they've denied those connections and those commitments to follow Jesus above all else. And Jesus here is just like, yeah, I, I, I see that. Don't think that I've gone, that your efforts have gone unnoticed. Let's continue on. Then he took the 12 disciples aside and he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. After they have flogged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. But they understood nothing about all these things. In fact, what he said was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So this is the third prediction uh, that Jesus offers in the book of Luke um, for his death. Um, he's done it twice before. Um, and the first and second time it happens, the, that story is instigated by Peter's identifying of Jesus. So here, Peter speaks up again, and Jesus follows it with saying like, yeah, I see, and remember, here's where we're headed. Um but this time in the prediction, he offers more details about his death than he has before. Before he said, like, oh, like the Son of Man will die and on the third day be, he'll rise again. Um, this time it's like, I'm going to be handed over to Gentiles. Or I'm going to be mocked and insulted and spat upon and flogged and killed. And this fits in with the context that we're in of Jesus is, is giving some teachings to his followers to help them prepare for really tough times ahead, to prepare for a waiting period while they wait for the good promise of the kingdom of God to come. And here he's like, okay, and and you know what? Like, there's going to be a smaller waiting period coming up soon where these awful things are going to happen to me, the son of man. And, but then on the third day, I will rise again. So you're going to have to wait a little while and then I'll rise again. And then you're going to have to wait a longer while um, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. But Jesus here speaks about it specifically as being part of some sort of preconceived cosmic plan, because he says everything that's going to happen is going is, has been written about by the prophets already. He doesn't quote what, which prophets are here and he doesn't quote specific prophecies, but he seems to have this idea that it's like, this is part of a plan. Like this is the way it's going to happen. And it's not like an accident. Um, but this is something that, that, people have been talking about for a really long time. And even though it's been talked about for a really long time, his audience says they understood nothing about all these things. Um, And in fact, it was hidden from them, so they couldn't grasp what they said. Um, So yeah, um, so the audience is a little bit confused, but they're they're gonna get it pretty soon. In the same way that they're all confused about his apocalyptic teachings, but he's like, at the time, you'll see it and you'll notice it. Um, and here, just to point out that Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem. Now, uh, they're on pilgrimage then to Jerusalem. And he would go on pilgrimage during ritual, like holiday times to go partake in uh, the festivals and things like that that were going on in, Israel, in Jerusalem. And because Jerusalem was the center of both their government as well as of their, uh, their religious cult, um, if you want to say that. Um, because the temple is there, and that's where you would offer sacrifices. But what's interesting here is that Jesus talks about himself as going up during the festival time, and he's going to die. Those are languages, that's language uses that imply that he might be considering himself some sort of sacrifice. Um, But what's interesting here in this version of the prediction is that he says, I'm going to be handed over to Gentiles, and Gentiles can't make an appropriate sacrifice 
at the temple. Their sacrifice would be seen as unclean. And moreover, he says that he's going to be um, spat upon and flogged and stuff like that. He's going to be made unclean. So if Jesus does see himself as some sort of a sacrifice, he's an unclean sacrifice. Which at the time, like, like if you were going to go make a sacrifice in the temple, you wanted to put your best thing forward to sacrifice your best oil, your best animal, your best whatever it is to give because you always gave God the best thing you had. And Jesus isn't the the best thing in a sense. He's, he's actually, he's unclean. Interesting. All right, let's continue on um, for this last little part of the story. As Jesus approached Jericho, so here they are on their pilgrimage towards Jerusalem, but they're approaching Jericho. A blind man was sitting by the roadside, begging. When the blind man heard a crowd going by, he asked what was happening. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So the blind man shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in front sternly ordered him to be quiet. But he shouted even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And the man said, Lord, let me see again. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Immediately, he regained his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, praised God. I love the story. It's a fun story just on its own, but when you read it in the context of everything else that's happened in 17 and 18 so far, this is Luke, like as a master author, like taking a bunch of loose threads and weaving them all together into one tiny little story. Um, it really encapsulates everything left in the themes, and we're gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna point it out as we go along. So. Um, if it's pilgrimage time and Jesus is journeying through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, that would mean that a lot of people were traveling through your town um, on their way to Jerusalem. So this would be the best time if you were in need to go beg along the street, because if there's more people, that means there's more um, possible uh, charitable donations that could be made to you as people are traveling along the way and feeling very, uh, feeling very religious as they go towards Jerusalem. Um, so this is like this guy's primary time to be out and beg. And there he is sitting by the roadside begging. So let's look at this blind man and let's look at everything he does that just like the blind man is like the hero of the passage, um, because he does everything that Jesus has been saying. This is what you need to do. Um, he's sitting there and he's, and he's begging, he's sitting by the roadside. So he's on the ground, which in Luke, remember, it's a position of humility that always means he's going to do well. And then he hears a crowd passing by. And they say that it's Jesus. So he's prepared and alert. He doesn't just ignore the crowd going by. He's like, something special is happening. And he asks to find out about it so he can be ready for it. Which again, in Luke 17, it's all about being prepared for the kingdom coming. And here, this blind man, he is going to be prepared. He's alert. He's ready. Um even though he can't see, so which is really interesting. Like he's the least likely person to be ready, but he's the most ready in a sense. So when he hears that it's Jesus, he shouts because he's far away and he's distant like the tax collector or like the parents with the children before they come to Jesus. So he shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then they, 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 the, the people in front sternly tell him to be quiet. And he shouts again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He endures and he prays persistently, just like the widow in the widow judge parable. And just like Jesus says, don't lose heart. Keep praying. Even when everything is against you, like this, like this jerk judge, like stay persistent, endure, don't lose heart. This guy does not lose heart. He keeps shouting even when people are against him. Um, and what does he shout? Jesus so he identifies Jesus, son of David, which is a royal and messianic term. So I don't know how he's heard about Jesus before, but apparently he has enough that he can correctly, even without having followed or heard from Jesus before, correctly identifies Jesus just like the parents and just like other folks who always do well in the story. He's saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're God's chosen one. You're the anointed. You're our king. 
have mercy on me. And again, that that mercy word is the one from Exodus that goes all the way back through their tradition. And it's the same one that the tax collector prays with. So he is just nailing it with everything he says. Um, uh, And so, um, and it also connects with the lepers in Luke 17. There we go. That's interesting. So unfortunately, there's other people in the story. There's the stern front standers is what I'm going to call them. Um, and just like the disciples who try and keep the kids distant to Jesus, they try and keep this guy quiet and distant to Jesus. And they kind of almost have that same heart that the Pharisee has of like, oh, well, well, thank goodness I'm not like this blind guy who should keep away from Jesus. I can stand up close and be close to him because I'm special and they're not. Um, so they ask him to stay away and to stay quiet because they kind of want to keep Jesus for them. But Jesus hears from a distance. So just like in the punchline of the widow judge story is keep praying, God can hear you. God heard the people who were in slavery and God will hear you when you cry out. Like Jesus here hears the blind man calling from a distance, even in the midst and the noise of the crowd. Um, And then what does Jesus do? And I love this little detail. Jesus orders the other people to bring the man to him. There in so doing, Jesus corrects them and redeems them in a sense. No, this should be your job. You should be bringing people towards me, not keeping them away in the same way he just did it with his disciples in the kids story. Um, so he, he, he has them do the right thing. He doesn't just do it himself. So that way they learn. And then when the guy gets close, Jesus asks what I'm going to call a stupid question. What do you want me to do for you? Like this guy is a blind beggar, Jesus. Isn't it obvious? But Jesus is setting him up and Luke is framing the story in such a way that it proves it literally nails home the point because the earlier thing is you're going to have to prepare for this awful time. You're going to be in pain. It's going to take a while. You're going to have to wait, but keep praying, keep asking. So Jesus here is like, ask me for it. And the guy says, Lord, let me see again. He prays and he asks for help. It's echoing the same heart of the tax collector and of the widow and of the parents of the children. It's embodying all of their cries in one story. Lord, let me see again. And he trusts that Jesus is who he is. He's powerful enough to do it, but also good enough to do it by coming and offering his request. And so Jesus says to him, receive your sight, your faith has saved you. It's not, oh, I'm so powerful, I'm amazing, I have saved you. It's your faith has saved you. So it really is really laying heavy on bringing the theme home that your these people, while they endure pain and while they endure waiting and while they're oppressed, need to keep heart and keep their faith alive because that will save them. And because they get it right, and because they keep their faith, this guy keeps his faith, he gets to experience the kingdom of God. Immediately, he receives a sight. He follows Jesus in the way that other people earlier in this chapter don't get to follow Jesus. And he glorifies God. And all the people, when they saw it, praised God. We have a party story. Every time there's a party in the book of Luke, it means the kingdom of God is there. And so they, they all experience it together. They've all kind of had a moment where they're all redeemed as a people through the actions of this blind man. And so Jesus is like, well, you asked for it. You prayed, you trusted, and you endured. You were humble, but you received nearness by being brought to me. And he asked you for what you wanted, and here you go. And so that one little story at the end ties together all the threads of what it does it look like for someone to experience the kingdom of God in the midst of oppression and pain and waiting and what seems like silence from God. Because the guy keeps crying out and he stays humble and he asks for what he needs. And then he praises and glorifies God when he finally gets it. What a fun little story. In a second, let's go ahead and dive into our lo-fi questions. Okay, so we have three lo-fi questions. Um, When we read a story, we just ask three simple things. What is God like in the story? What are people like 
in the story, if they're characters in a story, what are they like? And I love those questions because, again, um, I think you can ask those questions and get something out of the text and understand the story in a deep and profound way, even if you don't believe in it, even if you don't believe in God. Let's look at the book of Luke 18 and ask, what is God like, according to Luke? So in Luke 18, Luke is trying to drive home a lot of points about God. First, he characterizes God as being like a good judge, whereas other judges are corrupt or unwilling to listen or unmerciful. God is a good judge because he listens, he responds in mercy, and he does not ignore the injustice that's going on in the world or the needs and pain of the people. And yet, there is a tension present there because at the same time, God lets people endure suffering for a time. Like Jesus in the, in the beginning of the story is like, it, you're gonna all going to have to be like this widow crying out to a judge because you're going to keep crying out and you're not going to get what you want but keep crying out anyway and don't lose heart, which means that there's something about God that kind of just doesn't give people what they want right away. And even that means that people will have to endure suffering. Jesus is preparing them to endure tough, tough times ahead of them. The kingdom of God just doesn't come right away in its fullness. And so that's kind of interesting to acknowledge about God, at least in the, in Luke 18. Um, What else is God like? God seems to prefer humble people, even if they're really messed up. Um, And he doesn't prefer prideful, successful folks. So what I like about that tax collector Pharisee story is the Pharisee has it all together, but he's prideful and God is like, ugh, (laughs) no, thank you. Can't, Can't do much with that. But the tax collector who is all messed up and has been worshiping, the, he's been aligned with the eagle. He's been aligned with the pagans. He's, you know, like been taking money from God's people and stuff like that. God is like, oh, when he prays and asks for mercy, he gets it. He's going to be righteous. He'll be invited in. And what's interesting is that I guess you could assume that in praying for repentance, this tax collector might go home and change his ways and find another job and stop doing the wrong thing. But we don't get any language about that right away in the parable. But Jesus is like, in this moment, this guy, that's the good stuff. This messed up guy whose life is all over the place, who's been doing all the wrong things, but he's humble and he's asked for mercy. That's what God wants. And that's who gets in. Interesting. Um, and again, we have some themes kind of coming home of, of God being a God who shows favor and generosity to everyone. And here, pointedly, expects people to have the same orientation to others that God has. So again, God is one who redefines righteousness as being not blamelessness from some sort of law or religious ritual or something like that, or just standards of human behavior, but as to someone who has an orientation towards all others that has made them humble and generous with others. So we see the the rich young ruler, he's followed all the rules and he's technically blameless, but because he won't go the next step and get rid of things and share it with others, he can't follow and be a part of the kingdom. At least not without God doing something big. Those are lo-fi questions about God. Lo-fi question number two, what are people like in this story? Um, I mean, we get a lot of characters. We get the, we get the widow, we get uh, Peter, we get uh, the judge, we get the Pharisee, the tax collector, the parents, the kids, all kinds of people, the blind man. Um, a couple of things that I, that I like to walk away with from the story. Um, it looks like Jesus here in telling the story about the judge kind of acknowledges that people can be corrupt and selfish and self-righteous as we look at the Pharisee and the ruler in the story who kind of believe they've got it all together, but don't. Um, The Bible story acknowledges that people are like that. And yet, because of that, then people will have to endure suffering in an unjust world. Sometimes it's going to be so hard for people, this text says, that people are going to lose heart and lose faith. It's not a cute, like, Pirates of the Caribbean ride 
dangerous world where it's like, well, really the danger is kind of all far away and it's like, Ooh, it's spooky, but it's not real. It's like in Luke 18, like Jesus is like, no, you need to be prepared for real, awful, painful things that aren't fair and aren't good. And part of the problem is that people can do that on to each other. They can be corrupt. They can inflict suffering. They can be unjust. And then that means that there's people who are going to have to endure the suffering that's caused. Sometimes to the point where they lose heart and lose faith. That's what people are like. And yet in the story, we get these examples of really messy people, parents and kids, widows, blind men, tax collectors, who in spite of how messy their lives are, they get it right. And they do good. And they believe in mercy. And they want to show generosity towards others. And stuff like that. So the story acknowledges that it's, it's possible. And that we can find, people can find ways to endure and believe in goodness, even in the midst of a painful, hard, and unjust world. That's what people are like. Sometimes people endure. And they're tough. And they make it. And they're gentle and they're open. And sometimes people are corrupt and hateful and spiteful towards others and self-righteous. So people are like in Luke 18. And so why this story? Why this collection of stories? Um, it's, it's a little more obvious here than in other ones. I mean, because the whole theme of, of this section of Luke is Jesus is like, you're going to have to enter into a time of waiting, a time of preparation for the kingdom. And it's not going to come when you want it to. And so it's going to be hard and awful. And so it... It seems like this story is is tailor made for an audience who just needs to hear a message of yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be bad, <laughs> life is gonna be painful. But the challenge in the midst of it is to endure, to not lose heart, to keep praying, to keep asking, to humble yourself and look for mercy. To humble yourself to the point where you reorient yourself towards the rest of your community that you share and care for others with what you have. And in particular to Luke's audience, to the people he was writing to, this would be crazy relevant. Um, because they're, I mean, they're, after this story, if, you, if they were reading this, it's after Jesus dies and is resurrected. So they're not talking about them waiting for Jesus to be resurrected because then Jesus leaves, punchline, giving away the end of the story. Like Jesus leaves and it's like, yeah, I'll be back, you know, to fulfill the kingdom later. And they're all like, well, what do we do now? And so they would re-look back at these stories and they'd say, oh, we're in a time of preparation. We're getting ready for the kingdom to be fulfilled. We're getting ready for all the wrongs to be made right. But in the, we, that means we have to live well in the midst of a world where awful things happen. And so they would have the example of the widow in the parable to continue to cry out, even though they are powerless in the face of their oppressors. I mean, if these are, um, if, if, if the people reading these stories are Jewish folks, they've just watched and endured the destruction of their kingdom, of the temple, of the palace. You know, like everything has gone and been laid waste. Like, like, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are died, maybe even their family members. And they have to be like, well, what do we do? And they could maybe hear these stories and get one little glimmer of someone saying, hang in there, keep praying, don't lose heart. And if they're followers of Jesus, if they're disciples, if they're part of this like growing, you know, religion within a religion, maybe they've been kicked out of their home or their community or their religious group. And they have to wonder, well, what do I, what do I do? This doesn't seem right. And these stories bring home of a message, a reminder to them don't lose heart. It's going to be made right in the future. Endure. Or maybe these are Roman readers. And if they're reading this, maybe they are considering have already made the choice to join this, this weird new religious community that's popping up in their towns. And as a result of doing so, we're going to have to face the consequences of losing some of their status in the Roman world because they won't be partaking in a lot of their community life anymore. And they might become the ones that experience persecution by because they've chosen a new way. And so these stories do two powerful things. They acknowledge the pain of all these people. Jesus isn't like, if you do everything right, this should go easy for you. 
He's like, in fact, if you're doing everything right, it's, it's almost harder. And Luke is reminding his audience of that. He's validating their experience of how hard it is to live in a world where the kingdom isn't, hasn't come yet. And yet it gives them hope for a future that will hopefully help them endure and keep heart. They get these examples of the kids and the parents and the widow and the blind man to stay with it and believe in goodness and to be ready and prepared for the time when it comes. And it might seem impossible for you, Luke writes to his audience. But what is impossible for you is possible. It's possible for God. Even if you make a mess of everything, God listens and will be merciful. And then on the other hand, it also gives them this reminder in the, in the example of the, 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 the ruler that in the midst of this time of preparation of great pain and suffering, take care of each other. Be radically oriented to the people around you that you are for them and that you'll give up and sacrifice the things you have to make sure that they can get what they need. And they also get the reminder that as they're growing and shaping as a community, that there are some negative examples in these stories of people who work to keep others away from God. You have the Pharisee who's like, I'm not like all these other people. You have the disciples who keep the children and the parents away. You have the front standers who tell the blind man to shut up and sit down. And these stories would remind them, hey, if, if, if we're following the way that Jesus wants us to, that means that we invite everyone in, even if they're the wrong kind of people or if they're not very desirable to be around, or even if they're loud and annoying, or if they're messy like children are, or if they're sinners like tax collectors. Our job is to bring people in, not keep them away. Really interesting. So that's our story for this week. That's Luke 18. I hope you loved it as much as I did. Um, it wasn't one of my favorite stories going into it, but the more and more I dug into it, the more and more I saw that I was like, oh, Luke is a master storyteller. And here, it, they're all a collection of small stories that you can that you often forget or don't think about, but he's using them all together to weave together a teaching about something very important for his people. Because they were a people who were in pain and facing the apocalypse. And he is writing to them saying, don't give up. And so my friends, if you are in the midst of trouble or pain or suffering or turmoil when you hear this, whether you believe and call it God or Jesus or anything or not, I hope that you can stay with it, that you can keep heart. And that there are others around you that will help you endure. Be well, everyone. Take care. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net, and that's lofi with no dash, so L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again, so at lofi kevin. Um, that's kind of it, so thank you for coming, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.